Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Suzanne Spaulding. Uh, she is a senior advisor for Homeland Security and the director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, she also serves on the Cyber Solarium 2.0 Commission, as she did on the first version uh, of that landmark uh, panel uh, that developed so many uh, recommendations to improve the nation's cybersecurity. Uh, she also served as uh, the undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security, where she led the National Protection and Programs Directorate, which is now called uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Suzanne, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Vago. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Uh, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting uh, and trade show was sponsored by Safran and Leonardo DRS. Uh, we've had a very successful national uh, election. The results are still coming in uh, and, and obviously uh, the notion of uh, stolen or tampered with uh, elections uh, has has certainly uh, been a theme uh, among uh, some uh, in the electorate. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of disinformation uh, and downright uh, falsehoods uh, that are associated with some of those narratives. Talk to us when, you know, when we mean securing elections, uh, particularly from a cyber uh, standpoint, what does securing elections mean before we get to an analysis uh, of how good a job uh, the government, as well as industry, and as well as citizens and local, state and local authorities did in sort of uh, of, of assuring uh, safe elections on this uh, cycle. Yeah, uh, so it, it takes a lot to uh, ensure the, the integrity of the election. And, uh, and I think we really do owe both kudos and a real debt of gratitude to the folks at the state and local level, both election officials and election workers, uh, and folks at the federal level, including you know my former colleagues at the at at CIS of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, um, all of whom have worked together for years, really, uh, to to make sure that uh, that 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 our election infrastructure is secure and resilient and. Uh, based on the things that we have heard from, from CISA and from uh, election officials across the country, I think you are correct in characterizing this as a successful election from the standpoint uh, of election security, that, that there is no evidence uh, that, uh, that there was any malicious cyber activity that prevented uh, individuals' votes from being cast and counted as they were cast. And, and, and that is not, not a small accomplishment uh, and something that, that Americans should feel good about. You were uh, focused on ensuring uh, safe elections when you were on the job. Chris Krebs uh, certainly um, got kudos, bipartisan kudos, uh, for uh, all he did to make sure uh, the election uh, elections were smooth and safe. What does it take? You know, so when we talk about uh, both from a cyber perspective as well as a process perspective, uh, what does it take to ensure 
you know, I mean, there are thousands of precincts across the United States where uh, people cast their votes. Uh, and we largely do it through electronic means. And even if we do it in paper means, it gets translated to electronic means, right? So what are all that goes into making sure? Because, you know, not, not that long ago, there were serious concerns, Suzanne, about whether or not those networks, right? I mean, I remember you talking about this at a time when we were trying to improve the security of those networks. Where are we now, uh, especially given uh, the experience that we've had over the past seven, uh, several years? Yes. So we're in much better shape. And, 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 you know, it does include when we talk about the security of election infrastructure, what do we mean by election infrastructure, first of all, right? So it includes everything from that, those voter registration databases and in those places where voters can communicate electronically with those voter registra- voter registrars to make sure that they're registered. Um, that whole aspect needs to be secured. And again, that is something that is uh, very much uh, on the minds of, of those secretaries of state, those, those state offices that manage those registrations and, and through down to the local level. Um, and, and that's where we saw a lot of scanning uh, activity at, at a minimum in 2016. And, and so a lot of effort has gone into making sure that those systems are secure, that the voter registration databases where they can be are disconnected that, that, and, and, and that any kind of interference or, or alteration would be detected. So it's securing that and then the, the building of the ballot and the, and the uh, loading of the ballot onto those voting machines. There's a very uh, robust physical security aspect to that as well as the cyber security, uh, network security aspect of that. Um, that is something that has been worked out over years and is very robust. Uh, and then there is, and that helps to protect this, the integrity of those voting machines. Um, and in fact, what we have today all across the country for nearly all American voters is the opportunity to have a paper ballot, uh, even if it is then fed into a machine that electronically tabulates, those paper ballots right. are preserved. And, the, and that is what really ultimately at the end of the day, the fail safe is that you can have an audit trail. And I'm sure we'll be seeing that in the days and weeks to come that election uh, uh, jurisdictions all across the country will be doing normal audits to, inch, to, to reassure that in fact votes were tabulated as cast. And we have those paper records to provide that confidence to the American public that 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 all those early steps and then this fail safe uh, ensure that that happens. And how does um, not not to uh, you know put uh, at the risk of uh, having some folks go oh I just you just use the word interagency uh, right but it's not just uh, CISA. Um, Cybercom is United States Cyber Command is involved. Uh, National Security Agency may be involved. Other intelligence agencies, uh, the FBI. Um, talk to us about all the different parts of the federal ecosystem um, that get involved to ensure, uh, you know, what to many Americans is, um, you know, one of the most important things we have: the vote to be able to go. And and it's relatively simple, right? We're either punching a card or we're flipping a lever. Um, what is the you know what is the interagency cooperation that's required, and how much earlier does it start to make sure uh, that that first Tuesday in November always goes well? Yes, I I would say that the interagency response is much like the threat, 
which is it's 365 day a year uh, activity because election workers and election officials, you know, they, they're, they're already, you know, they will be in the next few days starting to prepare for the next round of elections. Um, so this is a constant effort and, and it is at the federal interagency level as well. So you do have, as you note, there's the, there's a role for the intelligence community, NSA and other elements of the intelligence community to look outside the United States, to look at what our adversaries may be trying to do, maybe planning, right? And, and, and make sure that we are, are watching that and aware of that. We have the FBI inside the United States, um, you know, very much uh, aware of the, of the potential risks uh, to this, this safety and integrity of our elections. And we, we do, you know, and they do worry as CISA does about both cyber threats and physical security and safety at election places and and um, and you know again I think that was something that we were relieved to see went well yesterday that we, we didn't have any serious incidents um, but but you're absolutely right this is very much an interagency effort and it is uh, it is one that they they begin focusing on very very early because um, it's there's a lot to do there. Um, let's uh, talk uh, a little bit about um, disinformation, misinformation. Uh, obviously, this is uh, not just a domestic challenge, right? I mean, unfortunately, we have some of America's premier uh, leading political figures uh, who uh, continue to uh, propone fabrications and other falsehoods, uh, you know, not just about elections, but actually more broadly in terms of storylines we saw, unfortunately, uh, in the wake of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, the, the attack on him and the disinformation and the outright uh, misleading information that was uh, released. You know, give us a sense, uh, Suzanne, right? What are the efforts that go into combating disinformation? This is a topic we've discussed many times. You know, for you, the longer term solution to this is stronger civics education, which I think everybody, you know, I, I was at an event and, and the notion of uh, civics education was almost paramount in this. But in the more immediate sense, in the more immediate case, you know, we have to run a democracy and that gets extremely hard to do when people are, are lying uh, and then people, you know, and then, you know, right, they tell two people, they tell two people and you've got a problem. How are we finding missing disinformation uh, right now? And then I want to get your sense on how we're combating, you know, the Russians get involved, Chinese, Iranians, North Koreans also try to get involved in our politics uh, in order to be able to propagate some of these uh, falsehoods. Let's start on the domestic side. Yeah, Vaga, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. This is a major concern. And, you know, I think part of what uh, officials try to do is uh, get ahead of, you might call it pre-bunking, right? The claims that that we could anticipate might be made about uh, fraud or corruption in the election by reminding people uh, that that we want we are likely not to know the, all the results on election night, right? That some of these are going to take time to come in, and particularly the counting of absentee ballots and mail-in ballots that come in, um, and that and that there will be normal disruptions on election day, right? So we had we saw a couple disruptions yesterday, very few really, but. Um, in, in Maricopa County, a uh, problem with the ballot readers. So again, uh, paper ballots that get fed into these readers 
uh, and the the papers were mis were misaligned, and the uh, ballot readers weren't reading it properly or weren't reading it. Um, they were alerted to the problem very early in the morning, and they got technicians out and they fixed it. And they have again those paper ballots uh, to make sure that votes were were counted and tabulated as cast. Uh, but that provides fertile ground, and we see candidates uh, pointing to that normal kind of disruption, uh, claiming corruption and claiming fraud, and that uh, you know undermining the public's trust in the legitimacy of that process, and therefore in the legitimacy of the outcome. And that's hugely problematic uh, because it does threaten ultimately the peaceful transition or retention of power. Uh, we saw some uh, technical problems in Detroit, uh, you know, but these are normal things and we and we anticipated this. And, and so in terms of countering the ways in which it might be exploited by conspiracy theorists and, and those who would like to um, delegitimize the election was anticipated. And, and so an, again, an effort to try to educate folks ahead of time. And then, you know, up on CIS's website is information about how uh, all of the processes that are in place to make sure, as I say, that votes are tabulated as cast, even when you have some technical problems uh, as always arise. There were some DDoS attacks on websites um, yesterday, the denial of service uh, that disrupted the ability to, to, to get to certain websites, but that had nothing to do with the ability of people to cast their votes or for their votes to be counted as cast. Um, but again, all of those things uh, can be seized upon and become the basis for disinformation by candidates who, who may lose or be losing and, and want to uh, undermine public trust in the legitimacy of that process. So again, I think education, uh, putting up authoritative information, particularly directing people to what we have done over the years is directed people to their uh, local and state election officials as authoritative sources of information about how the election is done, how the audits are done, et cetera. Um, I will say that I am concerned uh, about election deniers getting elected into office. Right. Uh, particularly at the state level, particularly uh, as secretaries of state who are responsible for administering the elections, uh, I, I, because we have counted on them to be nonpartisan uh, and authoritative sources of information. So on a day when I think the results were really good for democracy, not, not in terms of either party winning uh, you know, control of either house, and we don't really know the outcome of that. But in terms of a huge turnout, uh, I think it was really, you know, encouraging a lot of young voters. Um, uh, so, you know, I think, uh, by and large, a, a good day for, for democracy, but um, troubling in terms of what the some of this may portend for 2024. Um, and how do you, right, I mean, uh, you know, thanks for uh, anticipating uh, the uh, question. Is there a technological solution to this, uh, Suzanne, uh, right, where, um, you know, if, if, you, if you do have, um, right, I mean, at the end of the day, whenever we talk about institutions, we're really talking about people who are doing the right thing and abiding by norms and abiding by the law and abiding by precedent. 
um, and and we will have uh, and and have and and the people have elected. Uh, folks who have a very different view and have said we will change votes as necessary in order, you know, what what can be done, given that we have a federated system where state and local authorities are in charge of this, right? I mean, is there a technological solution? Is there a broader national solution uh, that can be brought to bear here, given yeah, folks? Yeah, I- I think yeah. there are some things, uh, a lot has been done. Uh, we're in better shape than we used to be. And I think there's still more. I, I think on your latter point of, uh, you know, and our concern about uh, folks being, uh, you know, getting into office who, who have made it clear uh, their lack of respect for the, for the process and the legitimacy of the process. Uh, I think there, I do think it's really important that Congress move forward on the electoral reform uh, legislation. Uh, to clear up ambiguities and 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 make sure that we we are doing everything we can to ensure the peaceful transition of power, um, I I think we have so many more people paying attention to disinformation, both in government and researchers on the outside who are detecting um, uh, disinformation. You you know we'll, we'll I'll come back in a minute to what our adversaries are doing in that space, um, but also looking at the most effective ways to counter really pernicious disinformation from any source, including um, uh, domestically. I am really worried about efforts to intimidate uh, work on countering disinformation. Uh, I really am seeing an increasing uh, effort, um, you know, particularly by those who push disinformation to, to try to intimidate those who are working on countering detecting and countering disinformation, right? These accusations of a ministry of truth, uh, you know, uh, uh, bringing frivolous uh, suits or, uh, you know, claims against uh, researchers and, and as well as folks in government. I, I'm very troubled by that. I do think there are folks out there who would love to, to clear away the speed bumps that we're trying to put in, in place to keep disinformation from from going viral and spreading so rapidly, they'd love to just clear the lane. Um, And I think we have to be alert to that and we need to work on that. Uh, uh, You know, I do think that the the platforms have taken uh, more seriously their, uh, at least some of the platforms, their role in in this process. Um, But we, you know, we've got a lot of discussions still to have about that. And I think we need to remember that in addition to the domestic voices that are so obvious and that we, we hear and see, that we do continue to have our adversaries. Russia, China, Iran have been highlighted by both government officials and, and researchers as continuing to attempt to uh, um, influence the political discourse in this country in ways that further their interests and weaken us. And uh, so I think we, again, we need to continue to be alert to that and strengthen both our technical and our cognitive ways of countering that. And on the civics front, uh, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, I do think it's critically important in the you know, message that I would have today on that front is, is to remind folks that civics is not just about elections, that elections are critically important to our democracy uh, and public confidence in those elections and participation in those elections, which we saw, which is so great. But that if your candidate did not win and does not win in the days and weeks to follow, 
uh, election, that that's not the end of it, right? That that there's there's a there are ways in which you can be active at your local level, uh, in your communities to solve prob- real problems in your communities, and understanding how that system and process works is is really important and is an important way to um, to stay engaged, to not give up on democracy, to work on things like civil discourse, all that continues to be important. Um, how do we, you know, uh, very briefly, because I want to go to the congressional uh, makeup and um, some, um, you know, your sense, because we haven't spoken uh, as recently as I would like about uh, Solarium 2.0 and what are you, what you guys are uh, trying to accomplish on that. Obviously, Mark Montgomery uh, and Philip Niedermeyer and a number of other folks who've been on the panel uh, have been able to join us. Uh, let's talk briefly about you know, Russia uh, is uh, a leading peddler of disinformation and misinformation worldwide, uh, including targeted at the United States and indeed uh, almost every other democracy on the planet that uh, has a, uh, you know, it has a stern view of uh, the uh, autocratic uh, leadership in Moscow. Uh, China is very much the same. The Iranians uh, are uh, at work uh, and uh, so are the North Koreans. And indeed, right, I mean, there's a Binance a leading cryptocurrency uh, firm has, you know, for the second time been caught somewhat red-handed uh, in sort of working uh, with the North Koreans, right? I mean, that's a slightly different issue, so I shouldn't put it in there. But to say that the United States does have cyber uh, um, adversaries, uh, in, in whether in the information space or elsewhere, um, you know, from a um, countering an overseas misinformation and disinformation, how are we doing uh, right. Because, I mean, the, the point you've been making is with each of these election cycles, we're getting better and better and better at this. Um, what about foreign sources of mis- and disinformation and how we're counteracting those? Again, I think we're doing better. Uh, and I think, again, we're aided by a, a whole cadre of, of, of non-governmental researchers out there who are helping to shine the light uh, on inauthentic accounts. And we're seeing uh, in these latest reports coming out from some of these researchers, that infrastructure accounts that have been dormant that were set up by the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, Russia, um, over the you know in, for 2016 and for 2018 and for 2020, um, have been reactivated now and 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 are continue to push uh, this narrative that the elections were rigged, that the elections are illegitimate. Um, continue to push narratives that uh, undermine support for U.S. assistance to Ukraine, advancing Russia's and Putin's goals in Ukraine. Uh, and, and again, I think it's really important that we call those things out when we see them uh, and, and that these researchers you know, continue to help us to detect and identify that. What's interesting to me, one of the things that's interesting to me is to see how China and Russia are um, becoming more and more similar in their information operations. Uh, 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 Until very recently, the thought was that Russia's information operations targeting the US were designed to weaken us and to weaken trust in democracy uh, and to so exacerbate division and chaos in its effort to do so. Whereas China's information operations were really targeted at advancing their policies and perhaps advancing them in their competition for influence around the world. But we are, you know, in seeing increasingly uh, China 
recognizing that it's in their interest too to denigrate uh, our democracy uh, in that competition for ideas and to weaken us by undermining trust in our institutions. And so we're starting to see some of uh, 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 Chinese disinformation that takes a page from the Kremlin playbook. And Russia, of course, is pushing disinformation to advance policies as well as simply to, to sow chaos and division. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's been an interesting evolution, but they continue to be very active. From what we can tell and what the researchers and others have told us, they don't seem to be getting a great deal of traction, but in our country, it doesn't take a whole lot of people to cause uh, some significant disruption. Um, and any lessons on how best to be dealing with that on a daily, hourly, weekly, monthly, yearly basis? Yeah, I, part of it is to try to deter that. And I think, you know, one of the interagency players we haven't mentioned is the State Department, but I think right. certainly uh, messaging to our adversaries, look, we see what you're doing and, and this is not acceptable and there will be consequences. And then being in a position to impose consequences, again, as we've always said, we may not we in the public may not see those consequences when they're imposed, but um, but I think you know that's obviously an important piece of this. Uh, and then yes, continuing our ability to to detect and and I think to um, you know very clear policies with the platforms to take down inauthentic accounts where you're pretending to be an American uh, when you're not. Um, you know, is important. Continue to raise awareness in the American public that people should be skeptical, um, uh, uh, you know, not always just accept the things that they see uh, and uh, that, that they could be being targeted by foreign adversaries. And then again, as I have said time and again, I think ultimately we, we have to build public resilience against the content, uh, particularly of the messaging designed to make people give up on democracy, to think it's irrevocably broken, as opposed to flawed and needing reform that can only be brought about by our being informed and engaged agents of change. So that's at the end of the day, I think the most important thing we can do. Um, and I should uh, point out the person you were referring to at the State Department uh, in, is uh, none other than the ambassador uh, at large uh, for cyberspace and digital policy, and that's uh, Nate uh, Fick. Uh, who took office uh, in uh, September. Um, let me talk to you a little bit about changes in Congress. I know that uh, the election has yet to be decided. Uh, Republicans at the time that we taped this uh, look like they're, uh, they have more seats than uh, Democrats at this point. The Senate is evenly split. Uh, and uh, the uh, race uh, between Raphael Warnock, uh, Senator Warnock of Georgia, and his uh, competitor, Herschel Walker, uh, looks like, uh, it, it, or it doesn't look like, it. it they are going to go for uh, a runoff uh, in December. There was an independent candidate that took uh, a couple of percentage uh, points of the vote and therefore allowed neither of them to get the 50% required to win the election outright. Um, Suzanne, what are uh, what does the competition composition uh, up on the Hill going to look like uh, and uh, the changing seats, right? I mean, Chairman Langevin, uh, the Democrat from Rhode Island, who's one of the nation's leading national security minds and certainly one of the greatest advocates for better uh, cyber everything, uh, has decided uh, after two decades in Congress to retire. Uh, give us your sense on you know what this election means from a national security composition and particularly a cyber composition up on the Hill potentially. 
Yeah, it's got to be really interesting, I think. And and you're absolutely right. We know already, even without knowing who's going to be in control of either the House or the Senate, we know already that we're losing some key players here. And and top on that list, as you said, is Congressman Jim Langevin, who was one of my uh, co-commissioners on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission and someone that I've worked with on cyber issues for many, many, many years. And he he is unique in his both his uh, depth of knowledge uh, about cyber and cyber policies and his institutional knowledge and expertise and his ability to really get things done. I think um, even uh, Mike Gallagher, you know, uh, co-chair of the Solarium, but, but you know, Republican from Wisconsin, has credited Jim Langevin with with really being the perhaps most important member in terms of getting our recommendations from the Solarium, so many of them uh, enacted uh, largely in the National Defense Authorization Act. So his departure is a huge loss um, already right off the top. And then we've got uh, John Katko, uh, Republican of New York, who's retiring and um, and Senator Portman. Um, so the the two you know top um, uh, Republicans in the for the House uh, Homeland Security Committee and Senate uh, Homeland Security Committee. So either you know either the either will either have new chairs or new ranking members uh, on those two committees uh, one way or another because uh, those two folks are retiring and and where I think it's likely I mean we don't know yet exactly who's going to choose to take which committees and how that will all shake out. But it's likely that we will not have, I mean, I think we've been very lucky in the cyber arena to have had really bipartisan cooperation uh, that is highly unusual for this Congress uh, for the last several years um, to advance important legislation that, that to improve our cybersecurity. And, uh, and it, it will be a challenge, I think, to maintain that. Um, Fingers crossed. We'll we'll see how that goes, but that's certainly one of the top issues we're going to look be looking for. Is are are we going to be able to maintain a bipartisan uh, uh, approach to cybersecurity? And then I think there's you know part of that inherent in that is uh, kind of you know pushing. We're we're really pushing the envelope a bit on. Uh, whether it's the cyber incident reporting legislation, for example, that passed, that that was something people have been talking about for a long time and, and finally was able, were, were able to get support for. But industry is beginning to push back. I, I, I personally think they were a little bit on their heels in the wake of Colonial Pipeline and solar winds and, and you know, some high profile events that got J, the JV meatpacking that got Americans' attention. Right. Uh, and I think they're, I think they're back, uh, you know, sort of pushing back again. Um, and so, will we have, you know, folks in in Congress who will take up their cause and slow down um, some of the advances that we we still need to make on improving cybersecurity? Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I, I think from that perspective, we do have. Yes, continue to have some really important folks who will be there, like Mike Gallagher and Angus King, our co-chairs, um, and others. But I, but I do think that these changes in leadership could indeed have a have an impact. And and if the control flips, it may have an even greater impact. 
Um, let me ask you uh, one uh, last question. You talked about cyber uh, incidents uh, reporting. Um, I have to say, after having done this uh, stunningly now for more than 30 years, I don't know uh, uh, any uh, commission that has produced more meaningful outcomes uh, than you guys. I still remember uh, it was the first time there was a gap, the last time there was a gathering before the COVID lockdowns all uh, happened in uh, early March, uh, 2020. Um, what are some other priorities uh, for you as a commissioner on, you know, as the group moves forward to try to, you know, keep, keep the cyber ball moving uh, ahead, assuming that lawmakers of course will go along with it. Yes. So, so there are a couple of key things that we're really focused on. I, I am particularly interested in some version, at least of the Bureau of Cyber Statistics. I, I just think in the wake of the cyber incident reporting requirement, that if we, if Congress doesn't then uh, provide the funding, particularly, uh, and, the, and the, the authorization for the government to then take that data combined with all the other data that they have on what's going on in cyberspace and produce actionable uh, reports back to all the network defenders, uh, products that, that, that can help them, for example, justify a return on investment for security uh, uh, expenditures, use that data in ways that are helpful for business. If we don't make sure that we have the wherewithal to do that, we, we are gonna have failed. I think. So that's really important. The JCDC, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, um, going along with that, the Solarium rec recommended the joint uh, collaborative environment. Uh, it, you can call it whatever you want, but it is the, it is the data, again, a sort of an analytic piece that goes with that operational collaboration. And the authorization for that, I think, is really important. And finally, I think um, this some version of the systemically important uh, uh, infrastructure is, is you know where where we begin to carve out some of those most important national critical functions and the entities most responsible for sustaining those national critical functions um, where we have both uh, special uh, responsibilities on both the government and the private sector side. I think it's I think those things are some of the most important still undone. Suzanne, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care.